Hey folks, welcome back to the Traders for a Cause podcast. I'm your host, Zach Shellhaas, the Executive Director of Traders for a Cause. My guest this week is a good friend of mine and now a Pennsylvania neighbor, Mr. J.C. Peretz. J.C., what's new? Zachariah, what's happening? <laughs> Zachariah, I love that nickname. You're the only person, I think, that calls me that. So that'll be that'll be our thing. You can call All me. All right, we're going to start working out or what? Yeah, we can start working out. Yeah, we'll lift on Fridays. I'm down. Yeah, for sure. All right. So, so JC uh, is getting into hitting the weights now, and I uh, I sold JC a set of weights from my <laughs> high school days that I hadn't touched in years, and then all of a sudden I decided to get into shape, and now I'm thinking we have to lift those weights together. Yeah. Listen, I mean, I, you know, I was an athlete back in the day and played baseball in college, and you know, used to lift pretty hard, obviously, and sure. um, you know, over the years, you know, let's just say my benching what it used to be. Uh, my squats certainly are not, not even close. So, you know, why not? You I, I don't live like friends. in a little apartment anymore. So I have like a whole house. So I got plenty of space. So I got no excuses. No excuses. So anyway, JC, uh, for those that don't know you, you're you're uh, the president and co-founder of All Star Charts, and you specialize in technical analysis, and you are a certified market technician. Is that the correct term? As a chartered market technician, uh, okay. would be the proper nomenclature okay. for the CMT Association. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Tell me about your roots, like your beginning. Like, how did you get to where you are? Like, where'd you start? Yeah. So I opened the Robinhood account and just started YOLOing Tesla calls. And next thing I know, um, <laughs> no. Uh, so <laughs> that is some people's story, though. For sure. Um, so uh, I got in this business, I, you know, baseball, I was good enough to play division one. I, I was not good enough or I didn't throw hard enough to get any looks uh, to get to go pro. So my, you know, the, the skills that I did have, I had a, my curveball got me into a better school than I than my grades would have I had decent grades, but not to get into Fairfield. Uh, sure. So I got into a great school, you know, played ball. And uh, I got an internship at Merrill Lynch because Fairfield University is right outside Greenwich, Connecticut, For you know, sure. Greenwich is in Fairfield County. Yep. So, I mean, I couldn't have been better placed. And uh, my interview at Merrill was a joke. You know, it was basically just a revolving door of Fairfield interns every summer. I was just next in line. So the the the, the interview, quote unquote, was more of a formality. And it's like, all right, so when can you start? And I'm like, I don't know right now. I got nothing else to do. <laughs> so um, nice. it was great. I lived in New York City um, in uh, when I was in college in the summers. And, and I worked and I interned. And that was just an amazing experience. You know, not, you know, one thing I learned is that I didn't want to work at Merrill Lynch or any company like that. Ultimately, Merrill Lynch fell apart and doesn't exist anymore. But at the time, that was a, you know, pretty prestigious internship and just a great experience for me, for sure. Living in New York City and surrounding myself with, you know, other people that were interning at Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan and Bank of America, you know, these guys. Uh, and, and gals, for that matter, um, just building your network early on, not to mention the network that I had at Fairfield was great. Um, so then just got into the business, you know, started taking exams, Series 7, all that stuff. You know, I was a broker. I did investment banking deals. I put private, I helped put private equity deals together. I ultimately launched a hedge fund when I was 29. Uh, I started a blog over a decade ago, and that's what kind of started getting my name out there and, and started getting inquiries from, you know, investors around the world. So that was like in 2010, you know, right after the financial crisis, we started coming out of that and I started getting calls from, you know, Bloomberg and CNBC and Fox. And I was hosting, I used to host Fast Money way back in the day. I was still in my twenties. I was hosting Fast Money. Nice. Um, so that was cool. 
And, you know, again, great experiences. Uh, uh, you know, I was that media guy. You know, I was on TV multiple times a week, all the different networks. I've and, seen the videos and, and you were you had you had a great camera presence. Ah, thank you. Um, <laughs> but what, what was really good about that experience is really understanding the the how the sausage is made, you know, sure. not to pick on any networks. I mean, they're all kind of the same. It's entertainment. They're not there to help investors. It's actually quite the opposite. It's it's their only motivation in the media is to get the attention of investors. Sure. It's their job to distract. It's our job as investors to ignore. And I know that because I was part of the show building process, right? right? Like I built, you know, I helped build these shows. Like I've been talking with producers at these networks for a long, long time. And they're, listen, they're all great people. There's nothing, there, there, there's nothing that they are purposely trying to do. It's just, it's, it's just the way the system, it's the system that's wrong. It's not so much, you know, the producers and the anchors. I mean, quite the opposite. I had nothing but amazing experiences you know, with most anchors and producers. I mean, just fantastic all around, like behind the scenes, the camera guys, like you get to know them after a while, high sure. five in, yeah. you know, just totally cool vibe. And then in the green rooms, you run into billionaire hedge fund managers, you know, it's like, hey, you know, and you're just sitting there drinking coffee with a billionaire. And it's like, that's pretty cool. You know, so like, and then you eventually start having dinner with these billionaires and you get invited to these parties and all this stuff that, I mean, again, like I was in my late 20s, early, I had no business being in some of the places with who I was with and the sure. conversations that I was having. So my entire experience, it was about a 15 year process before I moved out to California. Not that I, I'm, I stopped learning, but that window in my life between 21 and 34, let's just say 35 uh, was was really where I, I I was able to learn from the people around me where I was you know I was really really inspired and I've gone all over the world meeting investors talking to investors learning from investors and it's just been a beautiful amazing learning experience it's been awesome that's amazing so over the over that 15 year period you said that you really found inspiration who would you say inspired you the most of all the people that you met? Well, you know, early on, it was it was the people that I didn't meet that in many cases, I still haven't met like the people, you know, the people that I learned from in terms of their strategies, guys like uh, Paul Tudor Jones, John Murphy, right? These are two people who I've never met and have inspired me uh, probably more than, than than any two people ever. And then ultimately, you start meeting new people. So then ultimately, my influences were people like Ralph Acampora, Luis Yamada, John Roque. Jeff DeGraff, like these were, you know, later um, sort of inspirations of mine, the way they view markets from a behavioral standpoint. Uh, I, I really have, I've, I've tried to do a better job at understanding the psychology behind the investor, um, which is why, you know, I'm part of that whole media experience, I think helped me. Uh, people like Dr. Brett Steenbarger, Andrew Menneker, Denise Shaw, uh, my good homie, Phil Perlman, you know, these are Annie Duke is another one. You know, these are people that are just brilliant thinkers and have really made a, a huge impact on the way I, I think about things. So while some inspirations come from, you know, the stock market behavioral side of it, you know, supply and demand, another group of inspirations is more the mind itself. Because at the end of the day, as technicians, we are analyzing the behavior of the market and sure. therefore market participants as opposed to the goods and services in which a market deals with. So at the end of the day, we're analyzing human behavior. But I think that's a really important element. And I think a lot of smart traders and things like that 
uh, would agree. And I know you know a lot of them. Of course. And, and technical analysis in general is a study in market psychology. I mean, what the chart shows you is is essentially the mindset of of the traders. I mean, that's the collective mindset of all information that is known and in many cases unknown, because I think what fail what, what people fail to realize is that these institutions and their clients, I mean, I can tell you for a fact how it works. I mean, I can give you all the ins and outs of how it works. They have more money than God. In fact, there was a book written more money than God. You should read it. It's actually fantastic. <laughs> they have more money than God. They have better resources and more money to get information than anyone in the world, right? right. They're not going to tell you what information they have, but they get it, right? Like, I'll give you a great example. One of my good buddies, he was, uh, he worked in, in the government, you know, uh, in, in shady areas in China and Africa and stuff like that and doing stuff for the U.S. government. Now, and then ultimately he went and a and, uh, hedge fund hired him and with all his connections in China and in Africa so they can see if this company was actually doing the things that they said they were doing, you know, and, and he has his connection. So needless to say, they get the information. We don't know what information they're getting. What we do know is how they're acting upon that information. What right. decisions are they making now that they have that information? That's what I want to know. Sure, it'd be kind of cool to know what they know, but I don't, I'm not, I don't really have to know that part. Sure. I just want to know what they're doing with that information. Sure. And by technical analysis is that study. What are these major institutions doing with the information that they have that JC and Zach simply do not have. We can't right. afford to have, we probably <laughs> never will. Right. Like, but that's not the point, right? We don't right. need that information. I, I just want to know what they're doing with it. What are right. they doing? Are they buying bonds with it? Are they buying stocks? Which stocks? Right. So, so, so your strategy is one that's more of a reactive, you know, you're, you're, you're taking a look at the chart, making a determination what these larger funds are doing and then placing your own money accordingly by what you see. Yeah, and you could see it in the money flow because these institutions have so much money that getting in and out of positions is a process. It takes sure. time. It's not like you just log into your Robinhood account and buy a thousand shares of Apple. Like it doesn't work that way. Like these positions take a long time to uh, to develop, to get in and out of. They don't have the ability to be nimble like, mo like the, the rest of us, but we can be nimble around those movements. And you mentioned the chart. It's not just one chart, it's 5,000 charts sure. that we go through each week, which makes it virtually impossible for us to miss any major trends because you just see them again and again and again. It, ma it makes it really, really hard to miss major trends. Very cool stuff. So I've heard you interviewed before and and a lot of these reporters are often like trying to get you to, uh, I guess, admit that, you know, fundamentals do play something or, or somehow into a good, complete trading strategy. And you're typically very dismissive of anything fundamental, claiming that you can garner any information that you need from technical analysis. Do they play a role at all in your current strategy? Any fundamentals at all whatsoever? No, it's just not anything that I'm interested in. And, and again, I'm not saying that it doesn't, that you shouldn't look at fundamentals or you should ignore, like, you can do whatever you want, right? And not just you, like anybody listening, like, go for it. I don't care. You look at the moon, light, moons and the stars. I have friends that look at that stuff. They tell me, oh, JC, you see where Mercury is today? You need to buy soybeans. What the f***? Right? I swear to God, I'm dead serious. And these are big time traders. This is not a joke. So anyway, I, I'm, not, I'm no one to judge. You do whatever works for you. As far as I'm concerned, we are analyzing the fundamentals. 
right? Right. But we are more so analyzing the people that are analyzing the fundamentals and what they're doing with that, with their interpretation of that. That's so the technicals are representing what the fundamentals are doing. I'm fully aware of that. I just don't care what those fundamentals are. You know, I'm more interested in the money flow. So I, I care about what sectors are outperforming, what sectors are investors buying, which ones are they ignoring for multiple reasons. First of all, if they're buying certain sectors, we want we should probably be buying them too. If they're selling other sectors, we should probably be selling those also. So that's first thing. Second thing, from an informational standpoint, which sectors they're buying is information in terms of risk appetite or risk aversion. Sure. If they're loading up on consumer staples and utilities relative to growth stocks and tech and financials or, or something like that, or more risk on sort of stocks, that's information. If right. the opposite is taking place and they're crushing staples and utilities and REITs and, you know, financials are making new highs and industrials are making new highs, that's information. The countries that are breaking out to new highs, like if emerging markets are breaking out to new highs, if some of these European countries like Greece and Ireland and Italy and Spain and all these places that are very well known for their wine, not so much the quality of their equities. Portugal is another good example. Austria, again, not exactly quality equities, quality wine. But if they're buying that stuff, that's evidence of risk appetite in Europe, for example. You okay. know, when you're seeing strength in Taiwan, when you look at the components of Taiwan, you got a lot of semiconductors in there. You got a lot of technology in South Korea as well, for example. You got a lot of banking exposure in Singapore. You know, so you're getting all this different information. Indian bank stocks have been a tremendous leading indicator. So there's a lot of information to gather from the different sectors, not to mention the asset classes. The bond market's the biggest, that, this is the biggest casino in the world is the bond market. So if you really want to know where the, where the largest institutions in the world, how they're positioning themselves, even if you never want to trade a bond for the rest of your life, that's fine. There's information in the bond market. If, there, if there's going to be, uh, if, if we're in an environment that stocks are under pressure, you're going to see it in credit. You're going to see credit blowing out. If credit spreads continue to narrow, that's not evidence of, uh, of, of an environment where the market is panicking and we're in a risk-off environment. Quite the opposite. Narrowing credit spreads is evidence of risk appetite. That tends to happen in an environment that stocks are doing well, for example. Different commodities, when you look at um, ratios between gold and the S&P 500, crude oil, what crude oil is doing and how that impacts the market, energy stocks and otherwise, Look at what base metals are doing. There's a lot of uh, high correlations with base metals and different emerging markets like Chile, which is the largest producer of copper in the world. So there's just so much information to gather from other asset classes. We call that intermarket analysis, True. right? When you cross asset analysis is how the institutions like to refer to it. But at the end of the day, we're, we're using information from the bond market, the currency market, ASEAN, euro. That's very important information on how the stock market is most likely behaving. So incorporating those asset classes in the stock market. And we're happy to trade all of those other asset classes. But even if you don't, to ignore that, I think is irresponsible. And as a fundamental analyst, you are going out of your way to ignore those things uh, as a technician, that's the type of uh, work that we do. Right, right. It seems like technical analysis is really there. It's the ultimate truth. I mean, you're you're looking at time and sales essentially. You know, and it's the only truth we can count on because if there are shares that that exchange hands at a specific date, at a specific time, at a specific price, that will never be restated. That is right. fact. That will sure. never be restated. 
And what we know mathematically is that the market returns don't fall under a normal distribution curve, right? Sure. That's not how this works. Markets trend. We know that for a fact. And right. that's why technical analysis works. Got it. Got it. So uh, I think the most of our audience is probably a lot of active day traders, probably a good handful of swing traders too. Do you have some indicators that you feel are of the highest value for these people to like put in their arsenal and to really pay attention to as far as, uh, you know, strategizing their, their individual plan? Yeah. I mean, listen, in terms of indicators, price is the, that is the number one technical indicator. Everything else is going to be supplement, whether it's volume or the MACD or the RSI or whatever indicator you built in your mom's basement, right? We've all <laughs> been there. We've all done it. We've all built the indicator. I'm guilty of it myself. I built a whole ton of indicators. It was called the JCI. Uh, nice. And I built it to measure sort of mean reversion moves back in 08. In this environment, it's useless. But in 08, when shit was hitting the fan, it's actually really helpful. Um, the JCI, I built it on uh, TradeStation using like their language, their easy Station. language, which is not very easy at all. But that's really the truth because CEOs can be lying to you or just wrong, right? Both happen all, quite frequently. Sure. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a malicious thing. The CEO could just be wrong. And in other cases, it is malicious and they're just lying to you. Both <laughs> happen frequently. Fundamental analysts are analyzing usually flawed data. You know, go, these young auditors coming out of school, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old that are doing all this auditing. They don't know the first thing about what they're auditing. They'll be the first ones to tell you, take them out for drinks, get them a little drunk, get them talking. They'll tell you the whole thing. So by the time that data gets to the fundamental analyst, garbage in, garbage out, right? Not to mention all of the uh, additional conflicts of interest on the sell side. Forget it. That's a whole nother conversation. So you can't trust the sell side. Then all this government data, they tell you ahead of time that it's going to be revised, right? Sure. <laughs> like they tell you these are just estimates, not to mention the analyst estimates are just estimates. These are all people's opinions. In some cases, they're just going to be wrong. In other cases, they're, it's a malicious intent. But regardless, we don't care whether it's malicious or wrong. We know that that happens often. So none of that stuff can be trusted. The only thing that we can trust is price. So if there's any indicator at all that I can say, follow that and i would argue relative strength there's wisdom in relative strength there's wisdom there that's evidence when you see the stock market getting slaughtered and there's one sector or a group of stocks that are green or one stock that's green there's a reason why it's green is because the guy of fidelity is that he has to buy a stock he's like all right baby come to papa because they're looking for liquidity events to accumulate shares that's evidence of institutional accumulation on the flip side of that if the market's ripping and your stock ain't moving or going down there's a reason because the institutions are looking for liquidity. They're looking for strength and they're feeding the ducks and you're the duck. Oh, so that, that relative strength or lack thereof is really important. Cool. So RSI, you love that, love that indicator. No, Rel well, I mean, I do, but that's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring specifically to relative strength. Okay. So this is assets relative to the rest of the market or okay. relative to other sectors or relative to the sector that it's in RSI just to confuse people because Wall Street loves to confuse people. RSI is the relative strength index, which is a momentum oscillator. Okay. Two so totally different things. It's just called the same thing to confuse people. Oh, I guess so. That is confusing. It is. <laughs> so back in 2020, we had obviously a pretty, a pretty good market crash. Like uh, when the pandemic came about, Yeah. you were one of the bulls both before and after one of the earliest bulls to set to, you know, basically predict a, a big time market rip. So what is it that you saw back then that 
led you to that conclusion, which ultimately was obviously a, a, a perfect call? Yeah, I mean, we were super bullish markets in uh, 2019. It was a great year. There was no reason to be bearish. A lot of people were already, you know, calling tops the summer prior because the yield curve inverted. And it's like, and I'm like, yes, yeah, so? They're like, JC, the yield curve inverted. That means the market's going to crash. I think it was like in August or July. And I'm like, well, if you just looked at one chart throughout history, when the yield curve inverts, yes, traditionally the market sells off, but not for a while afterwards. So right, right. If, the, if you're telling me the yield curve just inverted, that means we got a ways to go, number one. Second of all, we've known the yield curve was going to invert because it had been, right, it had been falling forever. Like, it was coming. It was, it was coming. Like, as soon as it broke 1.2, like, we knew eventually it was going to invert, right, mm. unless some dramatic thing. So the finally inverted, great. Everybody has a big makes a big to do about it. We buy more stocks more aggressively, right? right? Because just because the yield curve inverted doesn't mean just sell stocks. No, we're buying breakouts. Everything was great. So it's like, all right, JC, what's it going to take to get bearish, right? And this is in 2019. It's like, well, we're getting more stocks making new highs. More sectors are making new highs. More countries are making new highs. So when that stops and we start getting the opposite, fewer stocks making new highs. In other words, we start to see breath deterioration. Mm -hmm. then we'll stop buying stocks and we'll sell them instead and we'll buy other things. Well, what happened at the end of January? We started to see breath deterioration. Bonds start breaking out. Uh, the S&P 500 hit our upside objective. The Global 100 hit our upside objective. The Dow Jones transportation average is breaking down to new decade relative lows. Regional banks, the KRE index, broke down to all-time relative lows. Small caps uh, were rolling over. The Dow Jones transportation average was nowhere near highs as the Dow Jones industrial average was making new highs. The value line index, which is the median component of the market, was rolling over nowhere near new highs. So divergence, 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 to the point where by the time the S&P, the Dow, and the NASDAQ made their all-time high in mid-February, they were the only ones left, right? Everything right. else had already been rolling over. There was nothing left. In, and, and the argument was, all right, JC, the Dow Jones industrial average is making new highs. The transports are not yet. And now the transports are going to play catch up, right? That was the bullish argument at the time. Of course. And I'm looking at transports relative to S&Ps breaking down to new decade lows. I'm like, if transports are going to start outperforming, it sure has a funny way of showing it because we're seeing the exact opposite. So right. the bet wasn't the transports were going to catch up. The bet was industrials are going to catch down. And okay. then meanwhile, gold's breaking out. Staples are breaking out on a relative basis. Uh, treasury bonds are breaking out. U.S. interest rates look like they're about to fall off a cliff. So it's right. like, let's think about what the environment probably looks like if interest rates are falling off a cliff. Are stocks doing well in that environment or are they probably getting crushed? They're probably getting crushed. And as it turns out, look at all these breath deterioration and momentum divergences and one after the other after the other and bonds are breaking out. It's like, well... So at the end of January, like January 26th or 27th or something like that, it's like, all right, mission accomplished, sell stocks, flip the book, long bonds, buying gold, you know, um, rates are going to collapse and we don't want to be in any stocks. Now, the pushback I get is like, well, there's no way JC knew about the coronavirus crash and all this stuff. And like, <laughs> yes, that is absolutely true. I didn't know then about any coronavirus crash or any viruses. I probably know less now than I did then. I don't know anything <laughs> about science. Like that is just... I know about technical analysis. I know about sports. I know about wine. And like, that's it. You know, I'm like, I, I'm not, you know, I could barely hang a mirror on the wall. Like there's certain things I'm good at and there's certain things that I'm not. And science and viruses, I don't know anything about that stuff. What do you want from me? But what I did know is that the people who do know about viruses and 
did have that information. They were acting upon that information and they sure. knew well before any of us what was going down and it was stocks and they were selling them and we could recognize that. You could see sure. the selling. So we participated in that selling and bought bonds. And I remember being in the Wall Street Journal, it was like the worst day in the history of the Dow or something like that. Right. And I was literally quoted in the journal as that being the best month of our entire firm's history. You know, and and the only reason why that why that was possible is because we were analyzing the behavior of the market and market participants, sure. not the goods and the services in which the market deals with, which if you were focused on that and you're focused on what the companies are doing instead of how institutions are treating those companies. Right. You missed it because you're focused on like their earnings per share. Like the market <laughs> gives a shit about the earnings per share when the world's falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. So, but, but now when you, when you flipped the switch and went bullish after the crash, yeah. what did you see there? The opposite. Okay, so that's a, this is a great, this is a great conversation because it's like, well, JC, how did you know that it was the bottom? I didn't know it was the bottom. I had no idea. What I did know is that at the end of March, right, a lot of our downside objectives were being hit. Our upside objectives in bonds were being hit. So that is an interesting dynamic. And then we were scanning for relative strength on March the 10th, as a matter of fact, two days before the market bottom, the market bottom on March the 12th, the internals anyway. So the, the market of stocks bottomed on March the 12th, two days after we came out with this index. Again, we didn't know that. We were just like, okay, it's time to start looking to buy stocks. We don't know for how long. We don't know if this is a dead cat bounce. In fact, I thought it was a dead cat bounce, right? <laughs> At sure. the time, just to be clear, Many full did. disclosure. Yeah. I, I even put up one of those like charts where like the cat is falling off the building and then bouncing, right? <laughs> like, you know, have you seen that meme? Yes. I even put that, I even used that meme because I thought it was a dead cat bounce. Anyway, regardless of what we thought, we were looking to buy stocks, cover short, sell bonds, and let, now let's look to put money to work. We scanned by the stocks showing the most relative strength. So these were the names holding up the best during the collapse. And in hindsight, it's like, well, duh. But we didn't know duh then. It was just what the sure. data was showing. And what were the names? Zoom, DocuSign, Regeneron, Activision. Like sure. in hindsight, well, yeah, of course, those yeah, are the stocks exactly. that did well. But we didn't know the why yet. We right. just knew the what. They're buying these stocks. They're selling everything else. <laughs> uh, Newmont Mining was up there also on the scan, you know, so there was some gold strength as well. Anyway, go back. Go. It was on March the 10th. Go to like the coronavirus index, I think we called it. So it's easy to find or email me. I'll send it to you. Those names obviously worked out well. So in April, probably, yeah, probably in April, we started putting on some shorts, right? I thought the dead cat bounce was over. Okay. Immediately, two shorts in particular. I don't even think one of them got executed, but one of them for sure, we got steamrolled like in minutes. Like just the market be like, no, you idiot. Stop doing that, you morons. And it's like, and then at the same time that we were getting steamrolled on our shorts, our long positions were exceeding expectations. So in our meetings, it's like, well, that ain't working. Yeah. And this other stuff is working way better than we thought. For right? sure. So for let's sure. do more of what's working and let's stop doing what's not working. So what I thought was a dead cat bounce turned into something more substantial and then comes June and then June we start seeing these crazy breath thrusts. And these breath thrusts are very rare. We saw breath thrusts that we hadn't seen in 30 years. And historically these thrusts are early cycle behavior. These are the things that happen at the beginning of uh, cyclical bull markets, not 
near the end of them. Right. So in March and April, when we were buying stocks, we didn't know those thrusts were going to come. But when sure. they did, we reevaluated and said, ho oh, ho, think about what's happening. We're getting steamrolled on our shorts. Our longs are exceeding expectations. We're getting sector rotation. And now we're getting new expansions and new 52 week highs and momentum breath thrust readings we haven't seen in decades. Hello, buy stocks, buy stocks, buy stocks. And then we started seeing more breath thrust in November. The small caps started doing the same thing that the large caps were doing in June. So, whoa, look at these breath thrusts. Again, evidence of early cycle behavior. Then we just started seeing breath thrust in financials and energy in January. And look what happened. So we continue to get this sector rotation. And as the data comes in, and we're incredibly data-driven, if you haven't figured that out by now. <laughs> so as the data comes in, it has dictated our sort of our thought process. And then moving forward, you know, we want to think about what the environment is going to look like if stocks are under pressure, right? What sure. is going to now, and we've been doing this all along, right? All along, it's been, okay, what is it going to take for us to start shorting stocks instead of spending that time buying them? And then what is it going to take for the market to prove that, yes, in fact, we should keep buying stocks, right? So we want to analyze it both ways. So here we are today is the 19th of March, Friday, and the market's closing near a new all-time high for a lot of indexes, very close anyway. What are we looking for? We're looking for strength out of consumer staples on a relative basis. That would not be characteristic of a strong bull market. We're looking for credit spreads to start widening. Haven't seen that either. Um, looking for some, some strength out of the defensive assets like Japanese yen, U.S. Treasury bonds, gold, like we saw in January of last year, right? Sure. We haven't, we're not seeing that. So those are the things that we're looking for. Breath deterioration, of course. We just got the highest reading of new 52-week highs like ever or something. So, you know, we're not seeing breath deterioration. We're not seeing fewer sectors and countries around the world participating. We're seeing more of them. You know, we're not, we're, we're seeing new leadership companies, right? Like, Energy and, and materials and financials have been leaders. You know, they certainly were not that before. So sector rotation, as I learned, it is the lifeblood of a bull market. Go study any bull market in history. You're going to see it. And we're seeing it now. It seems like a lot of traders that, that I've talked to recently have said that that just over the past few weeks, there's definitely been a little bit of like change. Like the euphoria is kind of balancing out a little bit. Are you seeing any of that in, in your analysis? Well, on March the 1st, Staples bottomed out on a relative basis. And so did utilities on the same day. So I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's interesting. Um, so I, I really think from a tactical perspective, I think it comes down. I don't know when this podcast is going to be published. Is it going to be published soon? It'll be next week. Okay, perfect. So this is still relevant. Um, you know, I think it structurally speaking, bigger picture in terms of like market crashes, I don't think that's on the table if financials are above their 2007 highs. So right. look at the XLF. If this is really a 14-year breakout, not only are the markets not going to crash, like we're really just getting going, right? So right. anything severe, anything 2020-esque, any 1987-1929 conversations can't happen if the XLF is above 31, right? Okay. Can't happen. Anything bearish needs to be from a tactical perspective, from a short-term perspective, which is certainly possible, but I think would coincide with strength in U.S. Treasury bonds, relative strength in gold, relative strength in Japanese yen relative to Aussie dollar, mm -hmm. right? Those are the things, credit spreads widening. Those are the things that would happen if stocks are correcting even, even just tactically. Right. Structurally bigger picture, we can't have those sorts of conversations um, if financials are above those seven highs. Very interesting. Okay, so the next six months, what are you, what are you seeing? 
next six months, like we have a conversation, you know, in, in late September, the Dolphins will be in first place in the, a <laughs> in the AFC East at the time. Um, they got plenty of time to blow it in December. So at that time, they'll probably be looking good. Uh, I think stocks are higher. Uh, I do. I think stocks are higher. You know, again, I, I don't I don't invest that way. I don't think that way. Like, it doesn't really matter what I think is going to happen six months from now. Like, I would never, you know, I, I, I treat the data as it comes in week by week. And I can tell you what I'm looking for now. You know, why do I think that that that, that stocks are going to be higher six months from now? Because the trend is up. Sure. Right. So sure. just putting the prob you know, if we're going to play this silly game, I'm going to put the probabilities on my side and say that the it is an uptrend. So stocks will probably be higher. Right. But uh, there could be plenty of uh, evidence between now and then that suggests the opposite. And and, sure. um, and the beauty of it, and I think this is really important for everybody listening. It's really important to recognize as an investor or trader of any time horizon of any kind, it's uh, liberating to acknowledge that you don't know what the market is going to do. Sure. And that nobody else does either. So it's a level playing field. But taking that weight off your shoulders and acknowledging and recognizing that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Anything can happen. Anything. I've seen it. I've seen so much shit that never in my wildest dreams would I ever think would happen. Right. Crude oil trading below zero? Who had that one, right? <laughs> no way. Not me. And if you did, you're lying. Uh, and if you did, good for you. But uh, <laughs> if most people did not. You know, so the point is, like, nothing surprises me anymore. Like, I've been, I've been doing this way too long. People are like, I, every day I have conversations with people. It's like, hey, JC, crazy market, huh? <laughs> hey, JC, what? What a crazy day in the market. What's so crazy about it? Every day, that's what the market is. Like, there's, and, and it's funny because I don't know if you talk to as many people as I do, but start listening to these conversations. Everyone starts the same way. Hey, you see crazy market, huh? You see that market crazy? <laughs> what the hell's so crazy about it? You're the well, crazy one. Yeah, I, I will say is that it, like it seems like we're constantly setting new precedents for that. You know, if you would have if you would have talked to somebody two years ago, they would call it a crazy market, just like they're calling it a crazy market now. And, and every I, day, Zach, every day the market does something that it either hasn't done in a long time. Or hasn't done ever. Right. Every day that happens. Sure, sure. And and the, and the traders are seeing it. They're they're saying this is. I've had a couple of them say that experience in this market is a liability because, you know, what they've traditionally known to be true in the past is no longer true. Like the, everything's getting thrown out the window because the market. I don't buy that at all. I think the market is the same, because this is the thing, assets evolve. Markets evolve, decimalization, the whole thing, right? The one constant is you and me. It's what's going on behind, between these ears. We're crazy. We are insane, right? <laughs> Our bodies, you know, and this is where behavioral finance comes in, conversations with Phil, uh, Dr. Steen Barger. Anytime that dude talks, you shut up and you listen to that dude. He's the you best. Know, Annie Duke, Denise Shaw, you know, these are really smart folks that really help us understand how our minds work and therefore our competitors and uh, fellow market participants, how their minds work and how the collective market mind works. And it is incredibly advantageous. And that's the thing that doesn't change. And I've been to India a whole bunch of times, Hong Kong, Philippine, I was, I was Philippine Stock Exchange, Taiwan, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, all throughout Europe, all over North America, speaking with investors, learning from them, Tokyo, these cultures could not be more different than how I grew up in a Cuban neighborhood in Miami. Right. Couldn't right. be more different. Couldn't be more different. But between the years, 
Might as well be twins. <laughs> it's a very interesting way of looking at it. So what pairs best with your trading style, a white or a red? Oh, with my trading style. You know, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a trend follower. So I and you know what we call we here internally we call it the 25 Delta lifestyle, right? Okay. And the 25 Delta lifestyle incorporates a lot of breathing. It incorporates a responsible amount of leverage while at the same time incorporating a risk management process that helps us sleep at night. Um, so with that sort of theme in mind. What wine would describe me? I would say I'm uh, I'm probably somewhere around a Chateauneuf du Pape or a Gigondas, some sort of Southern Rhone blend. You know, maybe not you know overly Napa Cab Nebbiolo Barolo style, but also not like a a Burgundy or Beaujolais. Probably somewhere in the middle, you'll find me either in Southern Rhone or maybe even Northern Rhone. Maybe some Cornas or some Cote Roti. So, so full disclosure for people that don't know, JC happens to be a, a licensed sommelier. So, I figured I had to throw in a wine a wine question. Um, yeah, now that everybody now that everybody's nice heads are spinning. Yeah, I was drinking some Portuguese wine last night. Yeah, I passed the certified sommelier exam one year ago, about a year a year ago this month. Good for you, man. That was cool. Proud, was your art. proudest moment. More proud than than passing your CMT exam. Well, I was confident that I passed that one, right? <laughs> <laughs> the the sommelier is harder. Yeah. Yeah, dude. It's hard. It's really hard. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about what it is that you actually do uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, how do you split your time? I know that you you trade stocks. You provide technical analysis to hedge funds and to various market participants. And you also have educational products now. How, you know, how do you, how are you splitting your time? What are you doing more of? And, and how are you uh, kind of like delegating this empire that you're building? Yeah. Um, well, it, you know, a lot of my time, you know, our clients are the PMs, right? So um, I, I allocate a lot of time to, you know, really providing a great service to our investors. And in some cases, a lot of RIAs, you know, because Investment advisors want to spend more time building their businesses, spend more time with their families, not so much doing market analysis. So we help them with that. Uh, a lot of hedge funds and traders at hedge funds come to us for the idea flow because we're constantly pumping out ideas. You know, I had a conversation this morning with a hedge fund that's getting more into psychedelic uh, investments and things of that nature. And they're coming to us for help with the technical analysis there, for example. Okay. And then really individual investors of all kinds all over the world you know, really anybody who needs to put money to work on a regular basis, you know, and that falls with individual investors managing their own portfolios. You could be a doctor, engineer, teacher, whatever it is, and you have your portfolio and you're just looking for trend recognition, intermarket analysis, help with risk management, just idea flow, uh, putting the global macro uh, environment into context. Like we do a lot of, we do that really well. So again, you know, and, and it's really the same analysis for all of them, you know, might be a little more sophisticated for some of the institutions that are asking for certain things and maybe more keep it simple, stupid. Let's just get right down to it, um, you know, for individual investors and, and really everything in between. So you can find us at All Star Charts if you're interested in that. So how do I allocate my day? Every day is different. You know, I basically get up in the morning, pour a cup of coffee and just start ripping through charts until somebody starts bothering me is really <laughs> is really how it works. Nice. Um, you know. I do trade. It's not my full-time job. Some of the analysts at our firm trade more than others. You know, like, you know, Sean, like he's trading options every single day. 
Straza is a very active uh, manager as well. Willie, on the other hand, worked for 20 years at R.W. Baird with financial mm -hmm. advisors. So he has more of a financial advisor sort of mindset. Sure. He's not YOLOing Tesla calls like maybe Straza might be doing, uh, right. for example, one of our analysts. You know, we have analysts in India because we do technical analysis for investors in India as well. So Rashmi Shastri, for example, is one of our analysts and she is in India and, you know, she's not buying Micron or, a or AMD. She's buying Mahindra and Mahindra and, um, sure. you know, Hindustan Unilever and right. Are your products, I mean, you, you use the term individual investor. Do you think that your products cross over into uh, beneficial for active traders, day traders, swing traders? Yeah, you know, we're not, I wouldn't say day traders because we're not that short term. You know, we're not looking at anything intraday. You know, okay. that's just not, that's not where we live. Sure. Right? But uh, on a larger time frame, you know, for swing trading, trades over the next couple of weeks, next couple of months, that's really our sweet spot. So you think that that your your smallest time frame is the daily, essentially? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Sometimes I'll look at like 30 minute charts, just if there's a lot of volatility, sure. just to really see what's going on in there. But right. I mean, that's that's the exception that makes the rule. Got it. So if you weren't doing what you are doing now, which is running all star charts, what is it that you would be doing other than playing baseball and drinking wine? <laughs> well, I mean, if, if money wasn't an issue, like if I didn't have to make money and support my family, uh, I would be probably be like a little league baseball coach, you know? <laughs> nice. Nice. And, and, and like and like maybe like work work as a sommelier at, at like wine, at like a local wine bar or something like that, or maybe have my own wine bar. I don't know. That, that would go. be cool. Like if I wasn't interested in the market, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I, I think it, regardless of whether or not you were involved in the market, you have an entrepreneurial spirit. So I feel like you'd be doing You'd be doing something, probably opening your own wine bar. Yeah, I'd probably be coaching Little League Baseball and uh, and, and owning a wine bar. That, that sounds like a good, that's probably what it's, I'd probably be doing something like that. <laughs> so what's next for All-Star Charts? Like, where do you see the, the company going? Like, you guys have established such a, a great presence now. What's next? You know, we have continued to build out new tools um, that is just so exciting. Like we're doing things that have never been done before in countries that it, it's not even close. Um, you know, we're, we're able to break barriers and do new things for the simple fact that we have more tools now. We have more resources. Data is easier to get. You know, this is a revolution, Zachariah. The revolution <laughs> will not be televised, right? This right. is a revolution. It is a data revolution where historically speaking, the only investors that had the information and the data were the wealthiest and most powerful investors. Since the beginning of time, that has always been the case. Right. Individual investors had no power. They had no information. They had no data. They had no resources. It was only the wealthiest and most powerful people. Right. Sure. That's not my opinion. That's just a fact. That's been the case throughout forever, throughout all of history. Right. Until now where information is more readily available to investors than it ever has been before. Transparency is more so than ever before. The tools are only getting better, faster, more available, right? Mm -hmm. That continues to evolve. And as an investor, you can choose to not do that, or you can recognize that the revolution is here. It happened, baby. <laughs> so don't play your hate, participate. Oh my God. Tell me that's going to be in your next marketing piece. We don't do marketing pieces. That's not really our. That's not really our thing. Nice. So, uh, do you guys do any work 
analyzing individual equities or is it primarily you're, you're kind of zoomed out? Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Hell yeah. We look at individual equities because our macro intermarket analysis is where our analysis begins, right? We're going to rip through all the commodities and currencies and uh, interest rate markets and all of the countries around the world and their stock market indexes. And then we'll get to the United States and we'll look at the large caps, mid caps, value line, et cetera, et cetera. Work our way down to the sector level, right? This is the top down approach financials, energy, healthcare, industrials. And then within the sectors, you have industry groups. So like in financials, sure, you have the overwhelming umbrella of financials, but within that, you've got all kinds of different companies, capital markets, regional banks, broker dealers, exchanges, insurance stocks, vastly different kinds of companies. In healthcare, you've got medical equipment, which are basically tech stocks. You've got pharmaceuticals, biotechnology, managed health, Right? In energy, you've got all kinds of stuff. You've got the explorers and producers. You've got the refiners, oil services, the integrated. So you've got different companies in there in technology, right? You've got software, semiconductors, cloud computing, all sorts of different. So you have industry groups within the sector level. And then we'll dive into the individual names in the industry groups as a vehicle to express a given thesis in the market. So by the time we decide we're buying Abbott Labs, 95% of the reason we're buying Abbott Labs has nothing to do with the chart of Abbott Labs. Right. It's probably because we like stocks. We like American stocks. We probably like healthcare or tech. We probably like large cap stocks. And it just turns, and we like medical equipment, right? And it just turns out that let's just say Abbott Labs presents a better risk versus reward profile than Medtronic, right? And that led us to Abbott, right? Sure. So that's the top down approach. Now, in order to supplement that top down work that we do, we build bottoms up universes. So for example, we have the young aristocrats. These are stocks. So an aristocrat is a company that's raised dividends 25 consecutive years. So we're looking for the future aristocrats, if you will. These are stocks that have raised dividends from between five and nine consecutive years, right? And are uh, pushing new highs. Because if you're not making new highs, you keep making new lows, you're probably not gonna keep raising your dividend, right? right. So there's sure. a technical overlay on top of that. And we call that the young aristocrats. We've got uh, the Fade the Street report, which we analyze the stocks where the sell side is the most off sides, where the sell side is the most wrong and they're getting squeezed. So for example, let's say there's 20 analysts that cover XYZ, their average price target is 50, the stock's at 80. As the stock keeps making new highs, these sell side analysts are gonna have to upgrade that. So you've got a natural tailwind built in on that. And we're basically, it's an arbitrage taking advantage of the conflicts of interest on the sell side, which we can do a whole nother podcast about because there's an, a laundry list of them that we can exploit selfishly for our own profit. Right? Okay. We've got the short squeeze report, for example, which is similar thought process. In this case, rather than short squeezing the sell side, you are literally short squeezing, which we, you know, this, you know, we just saw AMC, uh, Blackberry, GMB. GameStop, major short squeezes and like, you know, all these like people that love uh, being uh, offended by things are like, oh my God, this is preposterous. How could this be possible? It's like, dude, this has been going on on Wall Street forever. Oh yeah. Like, just because you woke up today and read it in the paper doesn't mean this ain't been going on forever. <laughs> like, this is just another day. Get over it. Sure. Um, investors need more education. Like, no, <laughs> educate them all you want. Make, make them have a PhD before entering their first trade. They're just going to blow themselves up even faster, right? Investor <laughs> education is not going to change the fact that you guys are crazy, right? right it's not right. going to change anything. And probably a little more information is just going to make you blow up, even, right? Like, people are ridiculous. So we have all these different scans that we run uh, when we, and then we run, we run unique scans. So for example, value has been outperforming growth. We're going on over six months now. 
So we've been really allocating money and looking for stocks in the value space, energy, industrials, basic materials, financials, and they've been working out great. So we build scans according to what the market dictates rather than building tools and strategies and forcing that strategy upon the market, no matter what the environment is. And that's something I learned from Jeff DeGraff, shout out Jeff at Renmac. You know, he always said, first, we want to identify what type of market environment we're in and then develop tools and strategies to take advantage of that particular market environment. It's no different than in our regular life. Like you're not going to brush your teeth with a hammer, right? <laughs> you have a toothbrush for that. And when your wife asks you to hang a mirror on the wall, you're not going to get your toothpaste. Right? We have other tools for that. So just like in life, how we have certain tools for certain things in the market, it's the same way. There are certain tools, strategies, and indicators that work better and are useful in some environments. And then in other environments, those are completely useless. Got it. All right. So uh, we can go on for hours and hours talking to each other. But why don't you, uh, why don't you give a couple of uh, quick ideas for people you know, in the, in the short to, to medium term? What, what do you like long? I like financials, bigger picture, long for sure. Again, if the XLF is above those 2007 highs, 31 bucks, um, a price only basis. If you adjust for dividends, you're not looking, you're not doing technical analysis. You're looking at total return. So we're looking at price only, 31 bucks on the XLF. If we're above that, to not be long, I think is irresponsible. Then uh, with that in mind, Europe has a lot of financials exposure, also has twice the industrial exposure and a fraction of the tech exposure which a lot of all the, I, I, like, I like Europe for all these reasons. Sure. Look at uh, VGK, if I'm not mistaken, let me just double check. VGK, VGK is the Vanguard FTSE Europe ETF. 60 bucks is the, is the, is the trade there. If FTSE Europe, so if the VGK is above 60, I like it long, very, very aggressively long uh, with a target up near 90. I think you got 50% of upside in Europe. I mean, 82 is our near-term target, but realistically with this monster base. And another thing, look at the stocks 600 index in Europe and tell me that we're in a bubble. I got all these yahoos telling me the stock market's in a bubble. Europe's done nothing for 20 years. Zero return for 20 years. So, you know, I think that's evidence that we're just getting going. So I like financials. I like Europe. You know, I, I, I like energy on these pullbacks. I know for a fact that I don't know what's going to happen. But I think it would behoove investors to imagine a market environment where crude oil is at 200 and copper's at 10. I'm not saying that's going to happen, even though I would argue there's a higher probability outcome that that does happen versus it not. I would be more surprised if that doesn't happen than if it does. But whether it does or whether it doesn't, it's not the point. Think about what the environment looks like if that does happen. Are you prepared for that? What will you do in between now and then? Will you complain the whole time about high gas prices? Or will you be cheersing champagne because of the money that you're making along the way? I'd rather be the second one of those, right? right and sure. um, I think that's a real possibility. And I know for a fact that investors don't have that exposure. The NASDAQ 100 has 0% energy, right? Uh, the S&P 500 is 2% energy. Small caps and mid caps, it's like 1.5% energy. So investors, energy as a sector could quadruple and it will put in a dent uh, in your uh, portfolio. Passive investors have been getting destroyed since Labor Day of last year, crushed. Like we're talking 2,500, 3,000 basis point discrepancies. Wow. And I think the risk is for passive investors that that's just getting started. Unbelievable. Well, thank you for those picks. 
One question that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast, just because it's, I don't know, the signature, uh, the signature question, if you will. What is it that gets JC up in the morning? What is it? What's your driving force behind what you do? Oh, man, are you kidding me? There's nothing better in the world. This is the greatest puzzle in, in human history. You know, the smartest minds in the world have all attempted to be successful in the marketplace, and many have failed. The smart Nobel Prize winners, Isaac Newton, I mean, smartest guys ever, uh, failing miserably. Um, it makes this one of the most challenging and fascinating puzzles ever. Um, it's not like a basketball game where, oh, my God, LeBron missed the three and the Lakers lost and the game's <laughs> over. Or like, oh, you know, you got mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. That's it. Season's over. And there's like a, a finish line. Right. Like, it doesn't work that way in the market. It's always something else. It's always something new. It's always this new sector, this new group of stocks, those getting slaughtered. You know, this commodity, that currency, that country, this, this, that. It's always changing, and it's just fascinating for me. And for me, it truly is a labor of love. Saturday mornings, I get up. I don't read the newspaper. Um, you know, we use that for Kingling. You know, for me, I, I like to, you know, read. Uh, I go through the charts. You know, give me a cup of coffee and 2,000 charts on a Saturday morning, and I'm happier than a pig and shit. I think that you're, uh, you wore a shirt for Traders for a Cause 2020 that said Saturday is for charts. Saturdays like are that? for the charts. Yeah. Saturdays, are, Saturdays for the charts. are for the weekly charts. Yeah, there you go. There yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. People <laughs> love looking at incomplete candlesticks. Stop right. it. Stop <laughs> it. Well, JC, thank you for, for being on the Traders for a Cause podcast. We really appreciate your support, especially over the years. I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to meet you a few years ago and you could be a part of the Traders for a Cause organization and, and do what you've done for us is uh, – pretty awesome and i'm also very excited that i have you basically as a neighbor now just uh 15 minutes down the road we need to uh post pandemic do a little bit of uh wine drinking right hell yeah i'm in baby let's go <laughs> wonder if we could we, we lift weights and drink wine at the same time no the weights first <laughs> then the wine that's how that works weights and then wine yeah, not the other way around. That's how you get in trouble. Maybe that's another business idea. Well, they already do yoga with wine, don't they? So, like the uh, the weights with wine, uh, that might be interesting. Let's go whenever you're ready. I'm in. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, um, I guess we'll sign off for now. We'll see you next week. And uh, in the meantime, trade profit and make a difference. Thanks, JC. Appreciate it. Adios.